I want you all in your seat before you hear my first words, because I don't know that you're going to want to stay there, <clears throat> which is I've got a pop quiz for everybody. Look at all this stuff. <laughs> I didn't hear that. So I'm going to read you part of a speech, and as soon as you can guess the name, the author in the, the, uh, in the speech, raise your hand, okay? As soon as you think you've got this, raise your hand. We are met on a great battlefield of that war. We have come to dedicate a portion of that land. Still looking. Oh, we got some hands back there. There we go. As a final resting place for those who gave their lives that this nation might live. It is altogether fitting and right that we should do this. But in a larger sense, we cannot dedicate, hands going up, we cannot consecrate, we cannot hallow this, this ground. The brave men and living and dead who struggled here have consecrated it far above our power to add or detract. Got it? What is it? I heard somebody say Macbeth. Yeah. You will be staying after. Gettysburg Address, Abraham Lincoln. So um, President Lincoln took about two and a half minutes to deliver that message. A very gifted order. I'm going to be a little bit longer. Um, as a matter of fact, I think I have till 8.15 tonight. Is that accurate? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> oh, minus some pregame and things like that. So I want to tell you about my last trip to Gettysburg. Um, so, so I went there as part of one of those kind of corporate strategic planning times, and uh, the, uh, the CEO um, you know, had all, all, all these events planned for us. Um, luckily, one of them wasn't golf, so I didn't hurt anybody. But, but one of the things he had planned was a full tour of the, of, the, of the Gettysburg battlefield. And instead of just signing up for your generic tour guide, he had gotten a guy who had been a tour guide for, for Gettysburg for years, um, and now I think he was like, in, at that time, he was kind of in uh, semi-retirement. And, um, and he took us everywhere. This guy loved his job. I mean, he took us to all the big places like Pickett's Charge and things, but he took us to like places you'd never heard of, like Barlow's Creek, and he's telling all these stories and uh, picking all these different things. He just was, he was enthralled with what he did, and he was just excited to tell anybody about it. And then finally, at the end of all, all this driving around, stopping, talking, he took us up on the top of Little Round Top and just where we could see essentially the whole panorama of everything. And he, he took all the pieces that he had put together and he, he with these big sweeping you know, gestures, he just showed how the battlefield and all those pieces came together. And that was, that was quite a feat when you re remember this is, this is July 1st, 2nd, and 3rd. This is a long period of time. And it was just absolutely fantastic. And, you know, sometimes you've ever been there where you, you, you got a tour guide and you're thinking, oh, my God, how do I get out of this? Can I, like, just have a me medical emergency and then get out the, you know? But this guy was absolutely fantastic. And so after that was all over, we all went to a, a, a late lunch. Um, and he came with us. And the CEO said, could you tell everybody that story that you told me about that one tour that you, you had? And he said, yeah. So he started to tell us his story. And, and so the guy was really good at what he did, and, and it was really, really clear. And it was really clear to those people, you know, in, in, in the, uh, the other park rangers and his boss and things like that. So they would often, Gettysburg's not that far from D.C., they would often have um, what they called VIP tours. So he just said, hey, got a VIP tour. Could you be in such and such a place at such and such a time? He says, sure. And so um, 
he got the call and said, hey, could you come up here? And we, want, we want you to do a tour, be, be here at such and such a time. He says, like, sure. Um, could you give me a sense of who's in the tour, how big it is, and things like that? He says, that's all I can tell you. Well, okay. So he kind of went to the place, got out of his car, was waiting there. And, uh, you know, he's waiting for like three or four limos to pull up and a couple people to get out, be like a senator and his family or a senator, you know, a senator and some constituents or something like that. But he didn't see the... the Limos pull up. He's still waiting and waiting, and, and probably about 10 minutes late, he starts to hear something. He hears a helicopter coming in. Usually, this isn't kind of a path for helicopters. Sees the helicopter coming, gets closer and closer. He begins to see, he says, you know what? I know the markings on that helicopter. It was Marine One. And just as he recognized that, then a bunch of limos started to pull up and guys in suits and earpieces and their hand on their, their wallet um, kept walking around. You know, they're, they're coming out. Helicopter lays down and out gets Jimmy and Rosalind Carter, 1978. And then gets, out gets President Anwar Sadat of Egypt and his wife and, Pre and Prime Minister Menachem Begin of Israel and his wife and a few other people, a few other aides. He's like, Wow. Now, so for the folks who aren't my age, let me explain. <laughs> Egypt and Israel did not mix. There was war after war after war, and, and Egypt was the primary enemy of Israel at that time. And Jimmy Carter was trying to do something about it, so he brought them to this place to take a tour. And he, and, and my, my tour guide, just did this fantastic tour of this whole time, he took them everywhere. And somewhere in that process, one of the, I think it was uh, President Sadat, came up to Begin and he said, the blood that was spilled in this place, the deaths that this place has seen, and the deaths that our lands have seen, we have to figure this out. They were in the middle of the Camp David peace accord process. They took that tour, they left, flew back, and within 48 hours it was announced that Israel and Egypt had signed a peace accord. 1978, anybody want to guess who, who won the Nobel Peace Awards? It was Begin and, and Sadat. And it, and it had a lot to do with their trip to, to Israel, or their trip to, to Gettysburg, and this guy's passionate explaining of everything that, that, that had happened there. He loved his job. He explained it like he had been there, like he'd experienced it himself. And that message of Gettysburg, the passion was so evident, it was evident to those men, that it made you feel like you experienced the battle yourself. He was the catalyst that resulted in the beginning of the peace accord between two countries that had been at war, two peoples that had been in enmity for centuries. This man's love for the story, this historic event, this little town in Pennsylvania, it brought it to life. It brought the story to life for the president of Egypt. It brought the story to life for the prime minister of Israel. They experienced Gettysburg through his eyes and through his love. And it changed history. It changed history. So today we're going to talk about love, a love that's greater than my tour guides. We're going to talk about love of God for us. It didn't change history, it defines history. So the title of today's message is Loving God is Experiencing God. And the big idea is God pursues us so that we can experience Him 
and abide with him fully. We can't experience God without first entering into a love relationship with him. To discuss this, we're going to have to understand three important points. First of all, having a love relationship with God is a prerequisite for abiding with God. The second thing is, loving God is our motivation for experiencing God. And the third thing we need to learn is having a love relationship with God is the greatest thing that we can do with our lives. So let's start with prayer. Father, I ask that you open our eyes to your word and to your heart. Open our hearts to your message. And Lord, soften our hearts. Soften our hearts so that we can understand the love that you have for us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen? There we go. Okay, number one, having a love relationship with God is a prerequisite um, for, abiding, for loving and abiding God. Um, so it is God who pursues this relationship with us. So, so years ago, and I'm going to have to explain a lot of stuff to the younger folks. Years ago, before 911, you could visit friendly countries without a passport, <clears throat> or so I thought. And um, we planned this big trip to Bermuda. And uh, me, my wife, our four kids, and my parents were all going to Bermuda. And it was the first time we had gone to, to Bermuda since our, our honeymoon, which had been a number of years before our kids came. And my parents wanted to go with us. And, and um, so, so I was still under the impression that you could enter Bermuda without a passport. It's a false impression. So I show up that morning getting ready to get on the plane, which you didn't have to wait to get to the TSA, so we're showing up maybe an hour before the plane takes off. And I don't have my passport. I don't have my wife's passport. But my parents had their passports. And, and my dad just looked at me like, you what? You came without what? So, I mean, I still have scars. I carry my passport everywhere now. Um, <laughs> So what happened was my, my parents got on the plane and took my two oldest, the boys, which they had traveled with often, and I got back into the car with my wife and my two daughters who were looking forward to the biggest trip of their lives. Now, there's a phrase you've heard, you know, that long, quiet drive home? That's where it was invented. So what I found out, that that passport was my prerequisite to get on the plane as well as the rest of my families. And in much the same way, our love relationship is our passport to abiding and experiencing God. It, that dynamic, growing love relationship we have with God speaks of our citizenship in heaven as being part of God's family and turning ownership of our lives over to God. If we have that love relationship with God, we're citizens of heaven, but more importantly, we're members of God's family. And if we don't have it, we can know a lot about God, but we don't belong to God, and we haven't, he, he hasn't taken up residence in our hearts, and he doesn't abide with us. How do we know this? Well, the Apostle Paul, the author of, of a letter to Ephesians, church knew, and he explained it to us in Ephesians 3. So let's see what Paul had to say. So I'm going to read Ephesians 3, verses 14 through 19. If you've got your Bibles, you want to open it up. If you've got your phones, you want to turn those on. Um, if you don't, we're going to put the, we have put the verse up above us. Um, so turn your Bibles to Ephesians 3. So 
starting at verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth is named, that according to the riches of glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge, that you may be filled up with all the fullness of God. Now, if you could leave that verse up, because we're really going to kind of dissect this. Um, because this paragraph is just packed, this passage is just packed with information that we need to understand. In verses 14 and 15, Paul tells us that he's praying to God, the Father, for us. In verse 16, he's asking for strength for us from the riches of God and that that strength would be delivered or granted to us by the Holy Spirit. So I need, to, I need to focus with me because we're about to find a hidden gem in this passage. In verse 17, we find that we're going to need that strength so that Christ can dwell or live or abide in us. So quick recap. Paul just called on the entire Trinity for help so that Christ can abide in us. Paul just asked for all help from all three persons of the Trinity for assistance so that Christ can abide in us. That's what God wants. So let me put this in context. Paul just Paul's praise for the church, and he prays often. He prays in Romans 1, he prays in 1 Corinthians 16, he prays in Galatians 6, and about 20 other places in his letters to the various churches. But Paul's pulling out all the stops here. He's praying, Father God, send your Holy Spirit so that your Son may dwell and abide in us through faith. Verse 17 and 18 get to the why. So that you and I, that us, you and I, may be rooted and grounded in love. What love? Whose love? If you follow the context, you'll see that it's God's love, God's love for us. God wants to have that love relationship with us. Why? So that we can comprehend and know the love of Christ. It's those two words, comprehend and know. If you put them together, those, that, that knowing God, that loving God, that's our passport to abide with God. The comprehend and know, you put those two Greek words together, and it goes beyond just head knowledge. We experientially know the love of God. We know God's love because we've experienced it. We've experienced it firsthand. We have that unique experience that unique relationship with God, that heavenly passport. Do you know who experienced God's love? Do you know who knew God's love firsthand? It was the author of this prayer. It was the Apostle Paul. He had persecuted the church. He had put Christians to death. He had been an active force in defeating and confounding the early church. But on a dusty road to Damascus, Paul met Jesus. Paul didn't read a book, didn't watch a documentary. He met Jesus. And in that meeting, Jesus asked, why do you persecute me? And Paul responded, who are you? And that's when Jesus introduced himself, 
God revealed himself to Paul. Jesus said, I am Jesus, the one you persecute. And that, in that moment, everything changed. Paul heard that and everything changed. When God reveals himself to us, everything changes. Paul experienced God through the love of God. And he wants us to comprehend and to know the love of Christ. He wants us to know the breadth and the depth and the height of the love of God. And then he drops in a subtle bomb in verse 19. The love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. It's unknowable. I want you to know something, but it's unknowable. So have you ever gotten out a bunch of pictures from a vacation that you really loved, and you're showing to somebody, and you get that feeling, right? And you know that feeling? So we were, my wife and I were recently looking at some pictures we had of a sunset at our recent vacation in Tennessee. And we're looking at them, and we remember the sunset, and we're thinking, just doesn't do it justice. And that's what Paul's kind of saying here. He says, I want you to know this, I want you to know this. It just isn't doing justice. You know, Paul's saying, Father God, help. Holy Spirit, help. I can't explain it. You just have to experience it for yourself. So let me summarize what, he's Paul, what Paul's telling us in Ephesians 3. For us to experience God, to abide in him, for him, for him to abide in us, we must be in a love relationship with God himself. That love is unknowable. It can't be explained. It needs to be experienced. So let's take a step back and ask a really foolish question. What is love? What does it mean to love God? Well, I can't answer that in a Sunday sermon or a sermon series or a book or maybe a seminary course. And we know this, we're sure of this, because every week dozens of country and western songs come out about loving your wife, loving your girl, loving your dog, loving your truck. There's a song out there called, I Love This Bar. The fact that I know that doesn't make me feel good about myself. But we're going to understand real love. We're going to need help. And to do that, we're going to need help from the author of love, who is God himself. Because God is love. And to do that expeditiously, we're only going to stop at one very, very familiar passage. We're going to look at John 3.16, the most famous Bible verse ever. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. There is so much to draw out of this verse, but we're going to extract just one thing. God's kind of love is sacrificial. God's kind of love is sacrificial. God loved, so he gave. What did he give? His son. God models love as self-sacrificing. He gave. The father gave his son. The son gave his life for us. The Bible teaches us that love is sacrifice. It's giving up something of great value. God, to quote 1 Corinthians 13, 7, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. 
That's the love of God. God models for us that love. It doesn't involve holding anything back. God, to quote 1 Corinthians 13, 7, God bears all things. God believes all things. God hopes all things, endures all things for us. His love is so intense and so sacrificial. It's the greatest thing that he gave us, the greatest thing he could. He gave us himself. And there's nothing greater than the value of God. So some of you may know Romans 5, 8. God showed his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It means that God's love for us is of such value that he was willing to pay the greatest price. Not because we're special. We were yet sinners. We're still sinners. Not because of our value, but because of his love. So I want to do, I want to do an analogy at this point. I, and I couldn't come up with one. Any analogy, any earthly analogy pales in God's love. A, a father rushing into a burning building to save his child. That's because of the value that the father places on the child. In this case, God is saving us for his glory. So the original question is, what does it mean to love God? It means to sacrifice, to sacrifice our hopes and our dreams to God's plan. We sacrifice our time to God's work. We sacrifice our affections to God's kingdom. To love God is to entrust all that we are to the one who loves us beyond measure. To really love God, it's to sacrifice all that we are and entrust it to the one who loves us beyond measure. Can you see why this isn't a Sunday sermon or a Sunday series? Because we're not in the deep end of the pool at this point. It's too vast. It's just too vast. We're in the deep end of the ocean, the ocean of God's love. 1 John 4, 8 says, God is love. So we're trying to plumb the depths and the, of the essence of God. As we have seen, it's unknowable. But we're going to have to understand God's love if we're going to understand the second point, which is how does that love motivate us? Having a love relationship with God is our motivation for experiencing God. Why, you may ask. Uh, love is our motivator because love will stand the test of time and every trial that we'll face as Christians. Love is the most important and most powerful motivator in the world. Now, that's a bold statement, but I'm going to prove it with an even bolder statement. Love is the most powerful motivator in the world because love changed God. Okay, on your scorecard, check one off there. Um, there's a theological word for that. It's called heresy. So I want you to bear with me. I hope I have your attention. I know there's four pastors in this room. I definitely have their attention. If I can't do this in the next couple minutes, you'll get a letter in the middle of the week about a special family meeting where there's a sudden retirement of one of our pastors. But I need some patience to get to that point because I need to take you through three progressive proofs. Um, if your hands aren't sweaty, mine are. First of all, the progressive proofs are the world sees it. The Bible states it, that love is the most powerful motivator in the world, and that heaven proves it. So first, the world sees it. Forbes magazine is a top-selling business magazine. I confess, one of my favorite publications. Um, they came out with an article in their leadership, uh, leadership strategy section in 2019 entitled, 
the biggest motivator at work, question mark, love? I thought, well, this is an interesting business article. Um, let me read you the first paragraph from author Stefano Ticelli. Why do we do what we do? Now more than ever, we look for meaning at work. The days of simply working for a paycheck are over. Millennials, in particular, seek fulfillment in their professional lives. Ironically, the problem is in, our, in our world is so shaped by technology and data-driven systems that we often forget about personal connections, compassion, and even love at work. The, the article goes on, it was fascinating, it goes on and it talks about the three uh, ancient Greek words that we use here, eros, phileo, agape, and it closed with this thought. So if you really want to retain and motivate your employees, you have to look away from the data-driven reports and look to the relationships within your organization. Exploring the importance of love will uncover new opportunities to help you understand our organizations, our teams, and ourselves. Forbes magazine. And this was even before we all started to live at home in, with uh, COVID. Okay, the article wasn't written by a Christian, but it came to the conclusion that love is the most important motivator in the world. The Bible teaches it. The world sees it. The Bible teaches it. So we could review verses and passages and stories and doctrinal proofs until 8.15. But I'm going to simply, I'm, I'm going to give us just simply one. But if you want more than that, please feel free to email me at rick at gracecommunity.org. <sighs> okay. So 1 Corinthians 13, I'm going to cut and paste a bunch out of, of Corinthians 13, but let me just read 1 Corinthians 13 to you. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and knowledge, but if I have all faith and remove, to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have and I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. So faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. So God calls us to have hope in him. Jesus reproves the disciples for their lack of faith. But the greatest of these is love. 1 Corinthians 13 tells us that without love, we gain nothing. Love never ends. Love is the only thing that will stand the time and trials. Love is the most important motivator in the world. The world sees it, the Bible says it, and finally, heaven proves it. So let's address the elephant in the world, in the, in the room, or the universe. God does not change, or does he? Let's see what scripture says. Malachi 3.6, for I, the Lord, do not change. Every, James 1.17, every good gift and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So the Bible makes it pretty clear, God does not change. But I want to take some things that we've learned and that you've been taught and look at them from kind of a different perspective. 
The Bible teaches that Jesus was a perfect sacrifice without blemish. 1 Peter 1.18. That was his condition when he left heaven. We know the crucifixion left him with many wounds. As a matter of fact, Isaiah tells us about Jesus' physical condition. It goes something like this. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. When Jesus was resurrected, John 20, 27 tells us that he kept the scars in his resurrected body and that the disciple Thomas got to touch them. Did Jesus keep those scars when he went to heaven? Does Jesus have those scars in heaven? Revelation 5, 6 appears to indicate that he does. And from among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though he had been slain. Now, that passage in Revelation is highly symbolic. It may be what John saw, and it may be what the impression that John was left with. It may be what he perceived. But I think Jesus still has his scars in heaven. And I jotted down five reasons why I think that when we meet Jesus, we will see those scars. First reason is that the scars are an eternal witness to the incarnation of the Son of God. A spirit can have no scars, but the scars remain forever as a reminder to us that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Second reason I think Jesus keeps those scars is that the scars reveal why Jesus came to earth to be a sacrifice. Jesus' scars from the crucifixion attest to his sacrificial death. Third reason, the scars reveal that God loved us while we were still sinners. It was our scars, it was our sin that put Jesus on the cross. Fourth, the scars Jesus has bears bears in heaven testify to Jesus' unique position as the God-man, 100% God and 100% a scarable man. Last one, his scars signify that death was defeated. When we see him, we're going to see those scars, and it's going to be clear that those scars are lethal, and yet he triumphed over the grave. Love is the most important motivator in the world. The world sees it, the Bible states it, and heaven proves it because God loved us so much that he didn't change his character, he didn't change his essence, he didn't change his promises. But God left heaven unscarred, and he returned scarred. That same love and his modeling of that love should be the greatest motivator that we will ever, ever need the God who is seeking us out, so much so that he left heaven to reveal himself to us. When we're doing those hard things and our strength is waning and we're at the end of our rope and we're praying and we're telling God how hard life can be here on the earth, those hands that are holding you up have scars in them. That brings me to my last point. Loving God is the most important thing we can do with our lives. Now, that's a very strong assertion, but I think I can prove it by anchoring between two passages of Scripture. 
First one is Deuteronomy 6. I'm going to start reading at verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk about them when you sit in your house and when you walk on the way, and when you lie down and when you rise up. This passage is so important that the Jews had a specific name for just this passage. It's called the Shema. The Shema expresses the essence of Judaism, that God must be loved and obeyed at all times. Shema is translated to hear. If you hear nothing else, hear this. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and all your might. God is drawing and calling us into a love relationship with him. A God that loved us so much that he gave his son Jesus. God will wear the scars in heaven as eternal witness. And thus, loving God is the most important thing we can do with our lives. The second verse I want to look at is in Mark 12. Start reading at verse 28. And one of the scribes came to him and heard them disputing with one another and seeing that he, Jesus, answered them well, asked him, what commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one, and you shall love your Lord, the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your, with all your strength. That should be a relatively familiar verse to you now. Clearly, it's very important. The greatest commandment is to love God. Moses stated it. Jesus confirmed it. Now, I could hammer this again with Matthew 22 and John 10, or Luke 10. It's again and again and again. But the evidence mounts, and I'm just saying the same thing differently. Love is the greatest commandment because loving God is the greatest thing we can do with our lives. Why? God wants us to love him with everything we are and everything we have because God is the highest and best object that we can set our affections upon. Loving God is the most important thing we can do with our lives because, because God is the greatest thing to be valued or to be loved or treasured. Loving God is the greatest thing we can do for our lives. Let me say it one more way. He wants this because he loves us and he wants only the best for us. And God is the best. He's the most important. And the only thing that's worthy of our love and our adoration. If I could have the band come up. So let me try and sum this up. God is pursuing us because he wants to draw us into a deep loving relationship with himself. It's the only way that we can abide with him and that we can experience him. That's our prerequisite. To love God becomes our motivation for loving others. And there's no greater motivation that we could ever find because there's none greater than God. Earlier, I talked about my tour guide in Gettysburg and how he loved his job. And it permeated everything he did. God's love for us is so much greater. And it can motivate us to do even greater things. Because the object of our love is the greatest treasure. So there's two groups of people I want to close and talk to. 
first of all, I've talked about having a love relationship with God. And that may just be foreign to you. Or you're going, I know about God, but I don't really understand that whole loving relationship. I don't understand that. Well, please do not leave here without coming up to somebody and talking to them about it. After church, we'll have some of the pastors, some of the small group leaders down here. would love to talk to you about that. And then there's another group. Maybe you've been going to Grace for a long time. Maybe you're a member here. And you have that love relationship. You know you do. But it's grown cold over time. You haven't attended to it. And your heart's drifted away from God. And you're thinking, you know what? I want that back. Well, I would encourage you before you leave here today that you would have a conversation with God, that you would find somebody to pray with you and rededicate yourself to that. Okay? So, Lord, we just ask for everyone here, wherever we are in our walk with God, Lord, we know that you are like that father standing on that porch just waiting to see us so that you can run to us. Father God, I ask that you would draw hearts out, draw those who are in your family closer, and draw those who haven't met you yet. Reveal yourself to them. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.